Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. And sometimes I'm known as Strick or Baldy by my guest host, Josh Clark of Stuff You Should Know. Jay Strick. Jay Strick, that's true. Yeah, how are you? Thank you for having me. Ah, thank you for being on the show. And um, when I asked Josh what he would like to cover when we started talking about the possibility of doing another tech stuff together, he came up with a great suggestion. Uh, digital immortality. Digital immortality. You know, uh, I have a feeling the title of this episode will be Who Wants to Live Forever? Right. Because I'm a big fan of Queen. <laughs> Is that but, a Queen song? Yeah. Who Wants to Live Forever? That came from the soundtrack to the hit film Highlander. Oh. Cult classic. Did Queen do the whole soundtrack? Or they did. did. They no. did. Yeah. Highlander and Flash Gordon. They did I the full the soundtrack. I knew the Flash Gordon one. Yeah. I did not know Highlander. And I saw Highlander the other day and I was like, this does not hold up. No, the movie is one of those that I wish we could just wipe from history and redo because the concept is amazing. Yeah. But that's not what we're going to talk about. Although there are immortals in Highlander. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the connection, right? I guess so. Well, I, or Queen. Yeah. Your love of Queen and Queen doing the Highlander soundtrack. Right. There's the connection. <laughs> yeah. It's it, ultimately it all goes back to... uh uh, Tesla. No, we're going to be talking about digital immortality, this concept of using technology to extend our lifespans indefinitely. Yeah, to immortality. Yeah, to the point where uh, essentially until the sun burns out. <laughs> right, and the great heat death of the universe. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, because you could, in theory, if you were had digital immortality, there's nothing stopping you from hopping on a spaceship and hightailing it somewhere else. Sure. You know? Or being transmitted at near the speed of light. Yep. Yeah, you could be beamed from one point to another. And sure, if you... I wonder what that experience would be like. Well, maybe that it's the, that's the future of space travel, of physical space travel, is as digital beings. Yeah. Rather than... Maybe that's the wall we keep banging up against, is the physical limitations, and then that will finally unbridle us and allow us to really do like interstellar travel, intergalactic travel. Though presumably you would have to have something you're beaming into. Well, if you're yeah. just purely digital, then you have to have something to house that information. I mean, I guess you could just be literally just information beaming around, but I don't know how, I wonder what that experience would be like. Well, I wonder if it'd be like going to sleep. Think about a laser. Yeah. A laser doesn't have any sort of um, infrastructure. You right. can just beam and point. Yeah. And you're transmitting light information from sure. one place to another mm -hmm. at the speed of light, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what if we figured out a way to uh, digitize ourselves, as we'll talk about, um, and we were able to beam ourselves in much the same way that a laser beams light? Right. But the question is then, because if we are digitizing ourselves... We're usually talking about that with the the understanding that that digital information rests on top of some physical architecture. Right. Just as software needs hardware to run off of. Right. You need like fiber optics now. Yeah. I'm so, saying what if you remove that? If right. If we figure out a way to remove it, then there's no limit. Yeah. If you, if you to, can get to a point where we become pure information and there is no need for a, a physical infrastructure beneath that, mm -hmm. then we're golden. You know, Although, there's no limit then. I guess we would need some sort of receptacle to beam into even on the end, even yeah. if we don't have something connecting the two that's, points. Or that's else. what I was kind of getting at. The idea being that if yeah, I... There's if the I, flaw in my, <laughs> my, my so theory. You just got to send someone ahead. Like, all right, Bill, it's your job to set up all these 
these CPU towers. Don't let us down, Bill. <laughs> Do not let us down. Uh, make sure they're all plugged in and please use one of those uninterrupted power supplies. Because yes. if, if there's a blackout, we don't want, you know, oh, we lost Lucy. Right. She and didn't make it over. Please don't smoke while you're setting them up, Bill, because we could smell it last time. It stunk up the whole place. Right, right. So to get down to what we're actually talking about, you probably picked up on this. The idea of digital immortality largely revolves around this concept of somehow transferring human consciousness and experience mm -hmm. into a digital format. Right. Usually the way we describe it is uploading your brain into a computer. Right. That's kind of the easiest way to explain it. And there are a lot of really smart people who have been talking about this possibility uh, beyond saying it's hypothetical, saying it will be possible or it will happen. A lot yeah. of people strut around like they're just cock of the walk saying it's going to happen. And some sometimes they even put like dates on things like this. Oh, yeah. No, the the guy we got to talk about immediately is Ray Kurzweil. Sure. Kurzweil, uh, famous for his uh, futurism predictions, including the idea that we will reach what is called the singularity. That is the point at which technology is evolving so quickly that there is no meaningful way to describe the present right. because it's changing that fast. Yeah. Uh, the, and, the, and the way I always think about yeah. singularities, usually it's also the moment where um, one of two things has just happened. Either um, an AI has awakened and become conscious, mm -hmm. right? right? And therefore, we it is now the master of the universe as far as we're concerned. Or... We, it's the moment we merge biology merges with technology at a point where we're able to, um, remove ourselves from the limitations of evolution and chart our own course from that point on. Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. I would argue that there's also, uh, there's the possibility of developing, um, technology that allows us to genetically alter ourselves without having to directly incorporate like computers or electronics into our systems, that also can be, it's transhumanism is right. really what we're talking and about here. We're like right there. Yeah, we're, I, we're I on mean, the it's cusp. it's already kind of happening, like very crudely, but yeah. it's it, we're like right there well, as far as that last definition that's, you gave. Yeah, yeah, we're there. Well, even with the incorporation of technology, we're getting there. You look at things like cochlear implants. Yeah, right. And, and while this is, this technology is specifically meant to, give people who have either lost or never developed a particular uh, uh, sense or maybe some other form of, of neurological process. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, right now it's meant to address that. Right. In the future, it could be meant to augment, not just to to repair damage or to address a loss of something. Right. Like the, the defining characteristic of transhumanism is that um, you don't want a uh, a blade prosthetic leg right because the one you were born with w was removed right you want a blade prosthetic leg because you want to be able to run faster right it's not to it's not to uh, make up for a loss it's to further things. right it's to go to the Improve. next step yeah. exactly so uh this this singularity idea is very closely related to digital immortality and largely because of ray kurzweil because as it turns out, I think it's fair to say Ray Kurzweil has an issue with the concept of mortality. Yeah, I was wondering, like, I don't know that much about Kurzweil. I mean, I'm slightly familiar, but you clearly know a lot more about him than I do. And I was wondering if he is a um, like a fretful fanny. 
Like, does he constantly worry about misstepping and dying? You know, I'm, people die in really weird, random, mundane ways sure. every day. Yeah. And I wonder if he just lives in literal mortal fear of that. Well, he, he is certainly taking great precautions to extend his life because he does believe firmly that we will reach this point in which technology will allow us to extend our lifespans indefinitely within his lifetime if he takes care of himself. Right. So he he is determined. He doesn't I mean, you would kind of feel like a like a doofus yeah. if you you know, if you were capable of feeling if you died the day before they invented digital immortality. Right. <laughs> like, it's well, like shucks. Right. It's the like the last guy to die in a war right after yeah. like right before the ceasefire's been right, called or right. something. Right. Yeah, there's a there's a great um have you ever seen uh, – there's a British co- sketch comedy show called That Mitchell and Webb Look. Have you ever seen no, that? No, you've told me about it though. Yeah, it's it's uh, two comedians, uh-huh. uh, uh, David Mitchell and Robert Webb, who yep. do this series. And one of the ones they, they have is – it's just supposed to be an off-the-cuff conversation between the two. So it's not in the context of a sketch. So basically like what we're doing. Kind of what we're doing now, except it's obviously scripted. <laughs> no, uh, and okay. ours is not. No, clearly. But, but in that case, they have a conversation where David Mitchell is very upset with the thought that his generation is going to be the last generation to die. Yeah. And he is spiteful of the <laughs> of the next generation. <laughs> right. He's mad at them for being able to live forever while he has to die. Yeah. Whereas Robert Webb is like, you could just be happy for them. <laughs> and he says, no. <laughs> Same sort of thing, I think, with Kurzweil is that he's um taking great pains to take care of himself. He's he's. Uh, an advocate for a healthy diet and exercise, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He takes something like 150 dietary supplements. Uh, I'm going to have to correct you. And this is from the article that you wrote, 250 Oh, wow. A day. Yeah. 250 a like, day. He's just constantly taking pills. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's uh, – and and there, there are plenty of studies that have suggested that unless you are suffering a deficiency of some sort, these supplements are not – actually helpful. Well, um, it's kind of like um, vitamin A, I believe. Vitamin A uh, is known to help you see better. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure it's vitamin A. Yeah. Um, and it's been shown that if you're, especially like night vision is a little mm-hmm. deficient, that if you eat some carrots, your night vision will improve. So carrots do help you. Right. But if it's already up to whatever your baseline night vision level is, you can't improve you can eat beyond all that. the carrots in the world. And it's not going to help. As a matter of fact, you will turn orange. My wife yep. turned a little orange because she liked carrots so much when she was a kid. So, but she couldn't see any better beyond her baseline night vision level. Right. It's so same, I think it's the same thing as what you're saying. Same thing with vitamin C. Right. right. Once you hit a certain level of vitamin C, anything beyond that, you're essentially just going to pee away. And in fact, vitamins can become toxic. Too oh, much yeah. of anything is, is, is toxic to the human sure. body because it seeks homeostasis, right? right. So I'm wondering if Kurzweil, surely he's smart enough to know, like, hmm, maybe I should cut this one out or yeah. maybe I'm taking too much of this. Well, and it's also possible that the reported number of supplements that he takes has mm-hmm. been, you know, exaggerated as it's been reported over and over again. Uh, I, I am personally a little skeptical that he takes that many. But at any rate, the, the whole point is that he wants to make certain to live long enough to see the day <clears> when his prediction comes true. That, that we will have the technological ability to port a person's mind into some kind of electronic construct. May I point something out? Sure. I have just, while you were speaking, pulled out my uh, calculator 
and uh, Ray Kurzweil takes a pill every 5.76 minutes a day, <laughs> assuming he stays up all 24 hours in a day. Yeah, assuming, again, that that number is, in fact, accurate. That yeah. The number of supplements, not that I completely trust your math. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about some of the the concepts here about how this could, in theory, happen. Now, obviously, we are not at the point where we can create any kind of hardware and or software that would allow us to uh, to migrate an intelligence from our meaty brains. Right. And that's a huge problem. What yeah. you've just said, we we are dealing in something called software hardware mm-hmm. when what the substrate that our, our brains and consciousness exist on is what you would term wetware. Yeah. Biological material. Yeah. And we're, it's not necessarily analogous to a computer. Even yeah. though people tend to think of the brain as such, that doesn't mean that it is the same thing. That is absolutely correct. I mean, let, let's take memory for an example. Memory is a great way to illustrate the difference between a computer system and the brain. All right. So in a computer system, uh, you end up designating a certain space on some medium, right. like uh, on magnetic tape or mm-hmm. in certain, uh, you know, it, it all depends on whatever the form is that you're saving it to. But at any rate, it all ends up being zeros and ones. Right. And it is unaltered. Uh, if you call up a file and, you know, you haven't done anything to it since the last time you looked at it, it's going to be exactly the same. Right. There, unless there's some sort of corruption in the file. Uh, or you have made changes to it and then saved it again, mm-hmm. you're not, you know, it's going to be the same experience every time. Right. Human memory, totally different. Yeah. Um, a memory is, and we only sort of understand memory. Uh, we don't have a full grasp on how memory works. That's true. But based upon what we do know, when you experience something, your brain creates a certain neural pathway in response to the stimuli you are experiencing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, right here in this room, my brain is thinking about my hair, your hair, yeah, the heat in this room, the light in this room, little things. And I'm not noticing everything. It's all making my hair look pretty good, isn't it? it, it in stark contrast with all the rest of the experiences, <laughs> it is amazing hair. So the, the, these these pathways are forming in my brain. Right. Later on. If, assuming that I have converted this particular experience to long-term memory, which mm-hmm. is a pretty big assumption, honestly. <laughs> I can't remember what I podcasted about two weeks ago. Yeah, I think my hair is going to make it into your long-term memory. Well, I, the more you say it, the more likely it's going to happen. My uh, hair. When, when I think back on it, my brain will reconstruct that same pathway. Mm-hmm. So the memory is essentially representative in the physical relationship between the, the various synapses that light up. When I have this experience. Right. So there is a physical pathway that is retraced when you recall. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's not like your memory of how great my hair looks is sitting in one little spot of your brain like it would be on a computer's magnetic tape. It's distributed and it's faulty because when I remember the process of remembering Mm -hmm. Sometimes the, that pathway doesn't form exactly the way it did. And sometimes it adds new stuff. Exactly. I, I might fill in some gaps. Like imagine if you opened a, a PowerPoint presentation that you'd made. Yeah. And uh, 
there were a few slides missing, but then there was some new stuff, and maybe it was a little bit better than yeah. it was before, but you You're hadn't like, done anything to it. I don't remember this transition, but all right, we'll go with it. Just yeah. the very act of retrieving it from your computer's memory and opening it again mm-hmm. changes it. Right. That doesn't happen on a computer, but it does in, in human memory is what right. you're saying, right? Exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying. And the reason why I say it is that that's a problem. Because if we are ever to move from wetware inside our brains to hardware and software mm-hmm. in the digital realm, unless we factor that in somehow, like we create an algorithm that mimics the experience of remembering something, right? the experience is going to be fundamentally different. The experience of remembering will be totally different. I mean, one of the reasons why I very much argue against eyewitness testimony yeah. for things, especially for crimes that might have happened a long time in the past, yeah. is that our memories are faulty. Very. Now, if we were in this other experience where we had moved to hardware and software and our memories were more analogous to computer memory, that would not be an issue. Sure. Eyewitness stuff recall. would be great. Yeah. So but that, that's a, that's an, just one illustration of how this is a tricky thing. It is tricky. And you say that, you know, comparatively speaking, it sounded like your take on it was that human memory is faulty compared to computer memory. I, I would posit that there's also another way to look at it that mm-hmm. um, human memory is much more robust and rich than computer memory. Because think about it. When you say smell something for the first time and then you smell it again and again, that that memory of what something smells like is going to become more detailed. Mm-hmm. There's going to be more to it. It'll become more refined and it'll be totally different from that first scent memory that you created of whatever it was you smelled. Mm-hmm. And so I would posit again, sorry to use that word twice, no, but fine. it makes me sound pretty smart when I do. It does. Pretty good. <laughs> um, that that additional adding new material, adding new stuff to it when Mm. you recall things or when you experience something, the ability to make your memory more robust and more rich and and to be able to refine it just through recall, to me, is superior to just straight, here's the information that a computer will give you and it it should be exactly what you had before. And also with memories, we can associate stuff that previously was not connected in our brains. Mm -hmm. Whereas with computers... The way you do that is through metadata. You tag stuff. Right. right? You're like, okay, well, let's tag this piece of information with all the metadata we can think of that ex- that that describes what this information is really about. And then, if I want to associate things, I have to look for similar tags. Exactly. Like, but but in my brain, it does it autom- automatically, and it does it in ways that you cannot necessarily anticipate, which can lead to things like innovation, and right. creativity. Yes, precisely. And you also kind of hinted at something that's uh, the the big problem facing the idea of uploading ourselves onto the internet, Strick. It is that with with memory. Mm-hmm. We can figure out memory. We'll, we'll eventually figure out how human memory works exactly. Right. And that's what there's a, a philosopher called David Chalmers. Mm-hmm. That's what he's pointed out as the easy problem of consciousness. We understand, we're, we're going to understand how the mind functions. Yeah. Sometime down the road. Right. We will figure that out. There's a hard problem is what, what Chalmers has also pointed out mm-hmm. in figuring out how phenomenal experience our experience of reality is produced from those processes sure that that is the big issue that is facing us trying to upload ourselves onto the internet it's like when you talked about 
meta. Mm-hmm. The computer's not writing meta itself. It might be able to simulate memory retrieval in mm-hmm. its own way, but it's not writing its own tags. Right. It's not making these connections. It takes a human consciousness to do that. And not only do we not know how to make a computer simulate that, we don't even know how we do that. Right. And we may never know. There's a lot of philosophers out there that are like, we may never figure out the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, neuroscientists would say that clearly the mind, which is what we could probably, you know, use as an umbrella term for things like consciousness and experience uh-huh. and all that, intelligence and right. all that kind of stuff, that that uh, emerges from the physical construct of the brain. Uh, because you can you can observe changes to the mind yeah. when someone suffers an illness or injury that damages the brain. Right. And therefore, it stands to reason that the mind, in fact, is a product of the brain. So if you could figure out how to simulate a brain to a significant level of sophistication, hypothetically, you could have intelligence emerge naturally from that simulation. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, because we can't do it yet. Right. The the best we can do right now is to simulate a few thousand neurons. But there are, you know, we're talking about billions of neurons and synapses in the human brain. Yeah. Uh, from what I saw, the low but average estimate is something like 86 billion in yeah. a normal human brain. Uh, I, no, I'm sorry, not synapses, neurons. Yeah, neurons. It's trillions of synapses. Right, right. So it's it's incredibly complicated. And in fact, there are some people who suggest that it may be to truly simulate a human brain, you may have to go down to the molecular level, at which point the computational requirements for simulating that brain are going to be so vast as to be impractical or impossible to achieve. Well, you mentioned the Blue Brain Project in this article yep. that you wrote. Um, and I, I was just kind of skimming their website, and they mentioned that in their simulations, it requires about a laptop's worth of computing power. They didn't say what kind of RAM or hard drive or storage or anything it had. Sure. They just used a laptop's worth. So you can kind of let your imagination run with it. But that that was required just for one individual neuron yeah. to power. Yeah. So we're talking about... Uh, 86 a- billion laptops <laughs> worth. <laughs> Which is, that's, you know, should be great news for... Any, Lenovo? Exactly. So <laughs> any hardware manufacturers out there. Um, there are actually quite a few different uh, projects out there that are attempting to simulate brains for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily mm-hmm. so that we can port consciousness to them, but also to just study things like, uh, you know, how our brains work, how we might be able to treat brain damage or illnesses that that. Uh, damage the brain, that um, how how certain medications might react right. to our brains, yeah. building these very complex simulations. So some of them, uh, MIT has a course on the emergent science of connectomics. I've seen that lately, too. It sounds so full of BS, <laughs> but apparently it's it's a real deal. And and once you look into it, it's a, it makes total sense. It's yeah. just a terrible name. Connectomics is all about <laughs> the connections that happen within the brain. Right. And yeah, it does. Connectomics sounds like, a, sounds like it's some sort of weird economics course. Right, or like a, maybe an L. Ron Hubbard book. Yeah, like Dianetics, <laughs> yeah. Dianetics Part 2, Connectomics. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's an example. There's the U.S. Brain Project. There's an EU Brain Project. There's the that's Google the Brain, brain Project. That's the Brain one, right? Yeah. There? Yes. Okay. And there's the Google Brain Project. Uh, in 2012, they hired mm-hmm. Ray Kurzweil. 
Yeah, he's their chief uh, engineer, I think. Director of engineering. Yeah, yeah, for for uh, specifically for the Google Brain project. Uh, Which, they also, I mean, clearly Google has just put their cars on the table. They're like, yeah. we're putting some serious resources behind figuring out how to get people on to digital consciousness. Right. It's it's one thing to think about this kind of you know armchair computer scientist, neuroscientist sort of approach, but they're really putting actual money towards research and development on this stuff, including hiring another guy named Jeff Hinton, who is a British computer scientist who specializes in neural networks. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at using neural networks for lots of stuff, not just to simulate a a human brain. I mean, that might be part of it, too. But neural networks can be really useful for processing different types of information for all sorts of applications. Right. True. And also, I mean, if you think about it, just figuring out some of the efficiencies that the human brain has evolved to include Mm -hmm. as far as networking goes, if you could just even get some insight or inspiration from that, that could help tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's some other great uh, things I can mention. There's... um, Ted Berger, who is a professor at the University of Southern California's Center for Neuroengineering, Mm -hmm. who built a prosthetic of the hippocampus. Oh, wow. Now, the hippocampus is uh, largely... That's a money gland. (laughs) Hippocampus is is large... Yeah, it's largely associated with the formation of memories. Yeah. uh, Also with incorporation of emotion. But uh, memory is a big part of what hippocampus is involved in. I think it also... um takes in sensory information and determines what region it should be transmitted to, if it should go into long-term memory Mm -hmm. or that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a... It's a big deal. A big engineer in this case. And so uh, in 2011, came up with a proof-of-concept hippocampal prosthesis and tested it in live rats. In 2012, tested it in non-human primates. And supposedly sometime this year, they're going to test it in people. Man, that is amazing. So, like, if you have some sort of damage to your hippocampus and you're no longer able to form memories, mm-hmm. then this would be the thing for you, kind of? Yeah. I mean, this could end up being, depending upon the nature of uh, of the the problem, I mean, it could potentially be a treatment for things like Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, whether or not that turns out to be the case, we'll still have to wait and see. But right. it is very promising. Have you ever heard of Henry Mollison? I have not. He is like one of the uh, one of the more facent, uh, one of the more famous patients. Mm. Or to save time, you could just say one of the more facents. Facents, yeah. Um, uh, uh, in as far as memory studies go, because he had some, he had, I believe, uh, epilepsy, mm. and some old timey doctor gave him some brain surgery and messed up his his hippocampus, mm-hmm. and the guy was unable to form new memories from that point on. He could remember everything up to that point, up mm-hmm. to the surgery. Then after that, it was almost like his brain refreshed every, I think, something like 30 seconds. Wow. And he was he just lived in an institution and was fortunately taken care of by a few doctors that, like, really studied him, but also, like, really kept him from out the public limelight. Mm-hmm. His name wasn't published until after he died. But he yielded a lot of information about how memories are formed thanks to the hippocampus. But it sounds like he would have been a great candidate for that. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of a – and I have to trust other people's uh, details of this because I have no memory of it. I uh, had – there was a time where I, I had a kidney stone. Okay. And it was so bad that I had to go to the hospital. Yes. And they treated me with a, a very powerful painkiller. That just knocked your hippocampus out of the convention? I couldn't 
remember things. I had no short-term memory. Well, it makes sense. Like also when you're drinking, um, your hippocampal uh, function is, is messed with. You're, mm-hmm. You are not forming new memories mm-hmm. and you require the hippocampus to do this. So if you're doing something, if you're on drugs, if you have some sort of structural damage, if you have been drinking, like that's why you're, you're not forming new memories. Mm-hmm. That accounts for a blackout. That accounts right. for amnesia. Uh, your hippocampus is just not functioning properly. Exactly. Uh, there's another expert I want to mention, uh, Anders Sandberg of the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. I am a huge fan of that institute. Yeah? Yeah. One of my favorite people in the world works there. His name's Nick Bostrom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that yeah, guy. I know of Nick Bostrom. So Sandberg had said, uh, this is a quote, the point of brain emulation is to recreate the function of the original brain. So this is talking about actually creating a copy of a of a person's brain, not just the concept in general, but in the specific case of this person's brain, we're going to recreate it yeah. digitally. Neat. Uh, if run, it will be able to think and act as the original brain. We are now able to take small brain tissue samples and map them in 3D. These are at exquisite resolution, but the blocks are just a few microns across. We can run simulations of the size of a mouse brain on supercomputers, but we do not have the total connectivity yet. As methods improve, I expect to see automatic conversion of scanned tissue into models that can be run. The different parts exist, but so far there is no pipeline from brains to emulations. Now, he thinks that it may be very difficult to ever simulate memory in a computer the way that humans do, for the very reasons we mentioned earlier. Right. Um, he also points out that there is an, a problem with this particular approach as the scanning essentially damages or destroys the brain tissue because there's not a non-invasive way. Oh, it's like Heisenberg all over again, huh? You got to pretty much crack the noggin open and mush around in the gray stuff to right. find out, you know, to really scan it and get that resolution. So then this this uh, scanning would either kill you yeah. or you need a freshly dead person, in which case there's no longer consciousness there. Right. Right, exactly. Well, that so that sounds like a big problem. So you could make you could make a copy of a dead brain, which as you point out, not really that useful. Right. Or you could make a copy of a living brain, but in the process you kill the living brain, you are left with the copy. Right. Now, theoretically, this copy would think and react in a way that would be exactly the way the original person thought and reacted. Mm-hmm. But the original person's still dead. So, Josh, if you had this done, there would be a Josh computer, Joshbot 2000. A Joshbot would think like you, would have quips like you. Now with even better hair. With even better hair than you <laughs> and feel somewhat smug about it. Right. Uh, meanwhile, Josh Clark, the human being, would be Dead. no more. Dead. And this comes to another big problem in the concept <laughs> of digital immortality, which is continuity. Sure. So continuity being the continuous experience of you as Josh Clark, whether you are in your meat body or ported over to some digital format. I don't think that's that big of a problem. Really? Think about it, man. Every day, 
there, we, we have gaps in continuity. We go to sleep and ah, then we wake up. But you're and, talking about functional continuity. There's also physical continuity and there's the real problem. Oh, well, lay it on me. So functional continuity is exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's our, our experience that we are having and it does have interruptions, whether it's when we go to sleep or, or we are put under for a kidney surgical. stones or yeah, something. Exactly. It, all of that it could end up being a break in our functional continuity. Right. We can recover from that because the physical continuity, the stuff that's in our brains is still there so that even though we have that reset, we can come back and everything will be fine. Right. If the physical continuity is destroyed, as in the actual brain dies, then mm. you have a problem. Now, an interesting thing is that I've looked at some neuroscientists uh, and their work and what they have to say about this. And it was really interesting to me. There's a guy named Stephen Novella. Mm-hmm. He's a neuroscientist, uh, works at Yale. He has a great podcast called Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is a critical thinker and a skeptic. Uh, he has talked a lot about this as well. He's blogged about it. And his idea or his, the, his perspective, the way he, he communicates it, is that as humans, we have brains that are divided into two hemispheres. Now, through drugs or through surgery, you can have one of those hemispheres separated from the other, it essentially is rendered inactive. Right. But the two hemispheres are largely copies of each other. So even if this does happen, you can have a relatively normal experience. You might ha- find that some things are now very hard to do, mm-hmm. like math. That could end up yeah, being really guess, difficult. If your corpus callosum isn't there, I would guess math would be hard. Exactly, yeah. So he says, but... These two halves, which individually can act as a single brain, mm-hmm. work together. And we have, you know, even if you have the one shut down, the other one can continue to work. You're still you, largely you. Right. So he says, what if we then extend this and we make the assumption that, yes, we have created the hardware and software that will allow for the simulation of a brain in, in some way? We connect that to a person's brain mm-hmm. so that it becomes an extension. You know, it's an, another part of the brain, kind of like a third hemisphere, I okay. guess. Yeah. And um, and so this one is starting to form pathways that mimic what your brain does right. naturally. Right. So over time, it helps you think the way you think mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. It 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 also starts to build in. Uh, redundant memories. So it's essentially backing up your memories. Mm-hmm. And gradually, it's going to act like it uh, another hemisphere of your brain. Right. And yeah. it could even be more powerful, potentially. You could do things like include algorithms that like, make it way easier for you to do math. Right. You'd be a math genius. I would hope that if I were uploaded on the internet, my math skills would just automatically improve. <laughs> I would expect that. Yeah, you, you, there are certain little like base assumptions you want to make, <laughs> right. right? That's one of them. Yeah, like it'd be it'd be funny to be a digitally immortal, but crap at math. Right. So I guess you get made fun of by all the other digital immortals. Very likely, you know, the Kurgan is just taunting you before cutting off your digital head. <laughs> uh, so the his point being that over time you would be relying more heavily on the AI version of your brain that even while your meat brain goes to sleep, Mm -hmm. your AI brain could stay awake so that, you know, you, you as you could remain active all day long. 
because it's you know it's it's your organic brain that's sleeping, but your AI brain takes over. Yeah, and it, it could get to a point where you don't even really notice that part of you is asleep, and you could theoretically reach a point where your AI brain is doing the vast majority of the work, so that the time when your organic brain dies mm-hmm. is a non-event to you. Okay, so. First of all, I could see the AI brain becoming very resentful of the organic brain, <laughs> right? Having to do all the work while it just lays around and sleeps, right? Um, I don't know that the left brain gets mad at the right brain. <laughs> mind us. Okay, well, that's yeah. fair. They're always arguing. They're at odds. They're doing it right now. Hey, guys. Josh and I had so much to say about this topic that it turned out it was long enough to be two episodes, not just one episode. So we're going to stop things right here. You can find Josh's work at Stuff You Should Know, including the website, the podcast. Uh, they do live events. So check that out. And if you guys have suggestions for me, whether it's a particular type of technology you want me to cover or to do a profile on a person or a company or even just a suggestion for another guest host or interview, let me know. Send me a message. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook. The handle of all three is techstuffhsw and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 